hard to believe that just a week ago, or less than a week ago, we were engaged in uh, Serve Bellingham, this big project where we were trying to serve people in our neighborhood and around the city. Um, hard to believe on the one hand, on the other hand, I'm still kind of buzzing about how many lives that we got to, to touch, and um, there's so many ways that Serve Bellingham was a win in my book. Uh, for starters, when people make sacrifices to the Lord um, with their lives, He rewards them. And so I, I'm just excited that 135 plus of you and I got together last week. Some of you took um, burned vacation days or had uh, loss of income so that you could serve your community. I think that's fantastic. A second, we were able to marshal our resources and time and talent and treasure to meet very real needs in our community. And uh, our eyes were open to some of, those, some of those needs that we may not have known before. Uh, third, Serve Bellingham provided us with a real-world opportunity to walk out part of our vocation as disciples of Jesus. We got to practice part of what Jesus calls us to be and do as the church. But it's this fourth benefit of Serve Bellingham that I want to focus on in the preaching moment this evening because it's dripping with relevance uh, in relation to the text that we're going to be rooted in tonight. It is the fact that it, Serve Bellingham provided us with a great opportunity to be healthy witnesses to the work and person of Jesus. Let's face it, the church has a PR problem, especially if your only information about the church is network news media or social media, right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff about the church that isn't, isn't great. The church is often portrayed as intolerant and irrelevant or as a, a religious social services organization without any prophetic voice. The church is often viewed as either cozied up to conservative politics or as merely a social movement fighting against conservative politics. And it seems to me that some churches have taken the bait and have allowed these binary views of church to define how they behave in the world. So one extreme is to try and be holy by focusing on specific moral issues. Uh, this is the church that says is it upholds scripture by being anti-this or anti-that. The holy church tries to define itself by what is, it is against. Then the other extreme is the church that tries to be safe at the expense of the holy. This is the church that is all about, hey, look at all the kinds of people we include. We're so open and accepting to anyone, but they don't really stand for anything of substance. One mainline denomination known for their inclusivity recently posted a statement about scripture that reads, the Bible is like GPS, a brilliant guide, all-knowing, occasionally wrong. There's so much wrong with that statement. It's hard to believe that a major historic denomination could even put that out as their statement. The poor logic is astounding. Ryan Wasserman, Professor Wasserman, his mind must be going crazy right now. Like, can a book be all-knowing in the first place? And if a book could be all-knowing, could it also be occasionally wrong? That just blows my mind. Uh, we'll have to talk about that over a coffee or a pint sometime, but that's another point. My point is that when we try and be holy at the expense of safety or safe at the expense of holiness, we miss the mark. The church is called to be safe and holy because that's exactly who Jesus is. Few books in the Bible illustrate this concept as comprehensively as the Gospel of Luke, 
and few stories as comprehensively as the one that we're going to be engaged in this evening. If you're able, please stand as we read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Then Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you, Lord, for this good word, for this fantastic story preserved over the years for us. Thank you that this is a living word and we pray by the power of your spirit, you would help it to come alive in our hearts. Amen. The story of Jesus and his encounter with Zacchaeus is one of the most common stories in, in the Bible, especially because it also occurs in almost every children's Bible, which makes it one of the more you know, familiar stories in the New Testament. And unfortunately, what most of us take away from the Zacchaeus story, at least from the children's Bible perspective, is that he was short, and so he climbed up in a sycamore tree, and people were mean to him, but Jesus was nice to him, so you should be nice to short people too. Now, as a guy who's a little shorter than a lot of other guys, I'm okay with that. Like, you should be nice to short people. But I don't think that the main point of this passage is a morality tale about how to be nice to short people, okay? To get to the heart of the story, we need to first understand some things about the time and the place and the situation. The setting here is Jericho, which was a major city, a major trade route, which made it both wealthy and a center for taxation. In the Roman world, in this time period, there were two major types of taxes. I know we're going to talk about tax law for a minute. Just hang with me. Uh, the, the first type of tax was kind of like a property tax. So landowners would have to pay an annual one-time flat fee for their land and a flat fee head tax for every man, woman, child, servant, laborer, person that they're attached to. So every single person has a price that they have to pay the Roman Empire once a year. The second main type of tax was referred to as an indirect tax. Think sales tax. When you and I make a point of sale transaction, there's 8.9% or something like that on, right, in Washington State, and we, we pay that. Usually the credit card does it for us or the cashier does it for us and we pay a little extra. The Romans didn't have point of sale like we do today. So what they wanted is all of their sales tax up front. So what they would do with this, they would say, okay, Letters Reads Covenant Church, you're, we're Jericho. Last year, you guys brought in $4 million of sales tax. 
I'm anticipating uh, an increase in spending, and so we want $5 million from you, okay? Well, that means our whole community has to front up that money in advance. Not many of us could do that. So what would happen is wealthy people who are tax collectors would front the money. So let's say the Schoonmakers are tax collectors and the Hodges are tax collectors and let's say Gary and Ann are tax collectors. What they could actually do is bid on that tax. It's a $5 million tax. We owe the Roman Empire. Schoon say, I'll, I'll go 5-1 on that. The Hodges say 5-2. There may be the deep pockets over there. The Moors say, I'll go 5-5, five, five, five and a half million. So already they owe the Roman Empire their 5 million. Then they need to get that extra half million for the Roman Empire because they bid it up. And who's going to pay for that? You all and me. So they overcharge the people to make up that difference. And then they have to earn a living too. Now, to put it into perspective, all of us are Jewish and all of us are oppressed by the Roman Empire. Even the tax collectors were Jewish. So your own countrymen are overtaxing you to make money for themselves to pay the Roman Empire. It's a double or triple insult. The text says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and that he was quite wealthy, and that means he was probably quite unliked. Does that make sense? Okay. In verse 3, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but there was an obstacle. The crowd was preventing him. The Greek behind that phrase is they were actively pushing him out. One can imagine that a crowd in that status, you know, if you have status in the world uh, and you go to a ball game, you can get box seats. Or if you, um, you know, you might have a driver and a fancy car, or you, you can avoid public transportation. But if Jesus is coming through town and there's a crowd, you just kind of have to deal with that. And wouldn't the crowds just love an opportunity to jab little Zacchaeus in the ribs and push him around, right? So Zacchaeus has an obstacle to seeing Jesus. And maybe another person in his shoes would just give up and go home. Why risk it? But Zacchaeus has this drive. He wants to see Jesus. He's curious about whether or not this guy could be special. And we know that Zacchaeus was determined to see him from several details in the text. You can imagine it took great courage for such a despised person like that to go into public, but what happens next would have made a significant point to Luke's first century audience because Zacchaeus breaks two major cultural taboos. First, he ran. Just like we saw in the story of the prodigal son, Men, especially older men or men of status, did not run in public. I know that's so weird for us in Bellingham. You know, you and I might go for a run down at Boulevard Park, say, and we could be running with a college student or, or a high-powered CEO visiting from New York City or something like that. We wouldn't know the difference because we all have our shorts on and we're sweating together. That was not the situation in this culture. So by Zacchaeus running ahead, he's, he's making himself look shameful in public so that he can see Jesus. Second, men did not climb trees. When I was attending a certain academic institution, there was a man there who was head of facilities, late 50s, didn't get the memo that the little 70s running shorts were kind of out of style, but he would, come to, he would run to work in those. And one day I was standing against a stairwell talking to a friend, and for some reason I gazed upward, and there was jogging man coming down the stairs. 
I can never unsee what I saw that day. So you can imagine what the problem was if Zacchaeus is wearing a tunic and why men in the ancient world didn't get up high on people. There were all these strict rules about how many steps up you could be over someone else with, a, with gear like that. So Zacchaeus runs and he climbs this tree, making himself look shameful just to see Jesus. Perhaps he wanted to know if the rumors were true. Was there really a traveling rabbi who spent time with outcasts like tax collectors like him? Could it be true that Jesus, this traveling holy man, was also safe? Could it be true that in one person he could find godliness and compassion melded in one? Zacchaeus wanted to know, but he didn't want to get too close to Jesus. Going up in a tree was kind of the equivalent of Facebook stalking someone without actually sending the friend request, right? But watch what happens in verse 5. Jesus looks up and calls Zacchaeus by name, and then he tells him what to do, which is what? Come down. I want to have a meal. I want to stay with you at your house. This is one of the most powerful moments in the story. Zacchaeus was intending to check out Jesus from a distance to see him, but instead Zacchaeus is seen by Jesus. Studies have shown that when a, name, a, a person's name is called in a social setting, like a class or a, or a sermon chuck or Emma, their heartbeat goes up 10 to 15 beats per minute. Whoa, they're calling my name. But what must Zacchaeus have felt when a man he had never met before calls him by name, that's a little creepy, and invites himself over to your house? His cover of self-sufficiency, his voyeuristic view, his Facebook stalking in the tree, that cover is now blown. You know, the very first motion pictures were being produced at the turn of the 20th century. Some of the more popular early silent films were produced by the Lumiere brothers, and they were common scenes of people doing things like going to work or preparing a meal in your kitchen. Uh, one of the most famous films in 1903 was called The Great Train Robbery. It's about 10 minutes long about, you guessed it, a train robbery. But one of the significant things about this film is at the very end, the robber turns to the screen, pointing his gun at the screen and pulls the trigger and there's a, a loud boom and a puff of smoke. And in that very first audience who saw that film, many people ran out screaming from the theater. It was the first time in film history that someone had spiked the camera. They had crossed that fourth barrier. That, uh, up until that point, these people were satisfied in the theater watching a fairly violent kind of funny film take place because they were watching it from a distance as a voyeur. But once that, that character crossed the plane and, and it was like he was peering into the theater at them, it just spooked them out. That's, that's exactly what's going on in Zacchaeus's world here. He was trying to see Jesus from a distance as an observer, but Jesus, it's like he, he jumped out of the screen at Zacchaeus and looked at him and called him by name and knew him intimately, and that's exactly what he does with you and me to this day. Jesus isn't interested in being a subject or a historical artifact. His gaze is, is piercing, and he looks into the heart, and he knows what we are, and he knows what we've done, and he knows the way we think. So there's Zacchaeus, 
up in a tree, exposed in more ways than one, as we've discussed, and the maker of the universe walks up. What would Zacchaeus expect Jesus to say to him? What would you expect Jesus to say to you? You're here, checking him out. What if he just showed up? Lori Louise, I see you. Schoon, I see Jim, I see you. You know, what would we expect him to say to us? Because he really knows us, all the things that we hide and we mask. Would you expect rejection? After the Coast Guard, I worked construction uh, for a little while while I was working my way through undergrad. And my boss was a typical construction guy, not a non-Christian one. And uh, so we had savory conversations. Um, And one time he was asking me all these questions about church. And I told him, hey, I'm going to preach one of my first sermons ever. I was a layperson at the time going to school. And you should come. You should come check it out. He says, oh, you don't want me in your church? You don't know who I really am. Your church wouldn't want me. He's kind of saying it with an air of snark. But you could tell he was being genuine. Like, no, church isn't the place for a guy like me. But he was wrong. He was wrong. According to this story, my boss is the kind of guy that Jesus would have sought out. Instead of condemning Zacchaeus, Jesus offers to honor him by being a guest at his house. Now, let's just pause there for a moment and think about the significance of that. We've talked many times before about how meals in the ancient world were more than just social events. To eat with someone was to show them respect to show that you're making a purposeful effort at friendship. But Jesus, this holy man, was going to eat at the home of Zacchaeus, a a known sinner in the community. Is Jesus being safe in that moment at the expense of also being holy? Is he selling out his holiness in an effort to be kind to Zacchaeus? Not in the least. And here are two reasons why. First, Holiness is something given to us by God. It is about whose we are and how we treat other people. It is not primarily what we don't do, what we don't say, and who we don't associate with. Jesus was holy because he belonged to God and because his life oozed holiness. Spending time with Zacchaeus in no way was going to infect him or to make him unholy. In a similar way, those who are in Christ, through faith in Christ, are declared holy. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized, you're holy because God says you are. You're his. That means that we can invite visitors and friends and crusty guys like that construction boss of mine And they can come as friends and visitors to our church and our communities and our Bible studies. And it's not going to make us unholy. And you're not doing something wrong. In fact, you're doing something quite right. And it doesn't mean that spending time with people who aren't Christ followers outside of church is going to make you unholy. It's kind of our calling. Holiness is about whose we are and what we do positively. You can abstain from all kinds of unholy activities, but if you treat people poorly, you're being unholy. There's a lot of people who take great pride in not doing a bunch of stuff. 
They're mean-spirited. That's not the definition of holiness. Second, by dining with Zacchaeus, Jesus is showing himself safe, but he's not condoning Zacchaeus' sin. You've you got to see that mixture there. Jesus is hard on sin. You, you, if you read the New Testament, he's like straight up, talks about it all the time. Why? Not because he doesn't like people, but because he loves people. And he knows that sin in our lives, in anyone's life, will lead us to destruction. And he's a God of life. He came to bring us life. You never hear Jesus say, as some churches seem to imply, ah, you're okay just the way uh, you are. Everybody makes mistakes. Don't worry about it. And you never see Jesus justifying the sin of other people by saying things like, actually, Scripture is wrong on that point. The prophets didn't know the things we know now. We've progressed a long way since calling those things unholy. Sometimes it feels as if we want to be safe, and if we want to do that, we have to allow unholiness. Then sometimes it feels like in order to love someone, you have to love everything about them. I don't even know that that's possible. You just think about that for a minute. Pick up someone you really love. Do you really love everything about your son, your daughter, your spouse. I mean, I, I don't even love everything about me. I think I'm a pretty okay guy. But I mean, sometimes we feel that way with people, that we just got to accept the whole bag. I don't think that that's even possible in human life. But Jesus has this way of holding things in tension. He's safe and he's holy. He doesn't expect unbelievers to be safe or holy. He takes seriously that our world is infected by sin. And so why on earth would we ever expect anyone to have all their stuff together? Right? That's insane. Okay. Back to the story. The ball is in Zacchaeus' court. Jesus exposed Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus now knows that Jesus knows who he really is. And maybe for the first time, this outsider realizes that he is at the same time known for who he really is, without a mask, and that Jesus loves him. And then there's the crowd. They thought that they were so much more righteous than Zacchaeus, and they must have been shocked what was their response when they find out that the Lord is going to the, the home of Zacchaeus, this tax collector? They grumbled. So there's Jesus and Zacchaeus walking down the street. Zacchaeus is out of the tree. I want to go to your house. And Zacchaeus is giddy. It says that he's full of joy. And he, yes, come on to my house. And then behind are the crowds grumbling. You hear their voices. They couldn't stand that Jesus would associate with a person like this. Just a, a side note, isn't it funny and ironic that after 2,000 years, I only know one person's name from Jericho in the New Testament, Zacchaeus. I don't know any of those grumblers' names, do you? Anyway, you can almost imagine the scene. Zacchaeus is walking. He's amazed that Jesus would want anything to do with him. Uh, he, he's full of joy. He's going to show Jesus hospitality. The crowd is behind them, sneering and jeering. And Zacchaeus, you know, he could have felt deep shame. They're probably calling out all of the dirty things that he is and has done. And here he is with this amazing, popular rabbi. He could have just felt worthless. 
But Zacchaeus is overcome with the kindness of the Lord. He's overcome with joy, such that he turns to Jesus right there. The crowds are right there grumbling about how rotten dude he is. And instead of being shameful and saying, I'm not worthy, or just running off to himself, he stops in the street and tells Jesus, basically, my life has changed. You've changed my life. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give back the things that I've stolen. I'm going to, if I've defrauded people, I'm going to give them four times the amount. That, that's called repentance, right? That's what repentance is. Confession is when you say, yes, you're right, I know I'm wrong. That's, that's a step. That's an important one. But, but repentance, what Jesus calls us to, is more than just an acknowledgement of the things that we've done or who we are, but it's a turning around, and, and it's, it's a life change, and it's freeing and it's good what is it that gets to Zacchaeus that's something I want to explore why does he change and when I was thinking about it I thought it was important to say why he doesn't change first of all notice how the crowd in rejecting Zacchaeus does not get him to change his ways at all how often do we reject others thinking that if we really drive home to the fact that we disapprove, do we do this with our kids sometimes? Sorry, kids. If we really drive home the fact that they're wrong and we're right and that they're doing it wrong, then they'll change, right? Does, how often does that work? Parenting, no. Marriages, no. Friendships, no. Workplace, if you're, does that really work very well? If it does, your employees don't really like you. <laughs> They're just doing it because, right? It's not a very good way to motivate people. It's like we think if we just keep showing people how wrong they are, maybe they'll get their act together and change. Well, I think, and, and you've got to think below some layers here, below surface layers, but I know in myself, and I know people that I've talked with over the years, people who have an ounce of self-reflection know deep down they're really screwed up. And I think part of what makes a healthy disciple of Jesus, I want to be as clear, I'm so glad our cohort kids are up here today because you need to hear this too from me. That part of what makes a healthy disciple of Jesus is that a person knows their desperate need for him. Right? Like we never grow out of that. We never grow out of it until the kingdom comes, and where our hearts are actually remade into ones that work properly. The more mature with Christ we get, I hope we grow, and I have grown tremendously in some areas of my life, but every new year, I also am shown new things about me, and I see just how deep the rabbit hole really is, right? And there's just, we're complex, and so I think a healthy stance for disciples to say, Lord, I desperately need you desperately need you. Only then are you and I going to stop trying to run our own lives, and only then are we really going to place our weight, our faith in Jesus, and trust in him alone to save us, because no one else can do it. I think if you allow safe space for people to work out their issues, their guard can come down, they can confess their sin and their shame and confusion, it's when we put people on the defensive that they typically bristle 
with self-justification, defensiveness, with resistance, and the rationalizations come out, and I am talking about experience, right? Push me in a corner. I've got reasons why I'm like this, and I can make myself believe them that they're right. I've heard from several of you about your experience with your Serve Bellingham t-shirt and how it was a great conversation starter for people around town. I just love that. Like, who wouldn't be proud to say, like, hey, I'm, I'm part of this church and we're doing these cool things. And, and I even had the opportunity for a couple people to say, like, well, why are you guys doing that? I think God really loves our neighborhood. That's actually really easy to say. It flows right off the tongue when you've got dirty hands and, and you're, you know, you're actually doing stuff, right? That's a great t-shirt. How effective do you think it would be if we didn't do any of the work and then we wore t-shirts around that said, you're a sinner, repent, and then we can talk about serving you? Do you th- I'm honest. Like, Do you think that that would be as effective? I don't think that that's... That's as effective, right? So Zacchaeus responds to Jesus because he actually feels known, which is all the dirty, nasty stuff, right? He actually feels known and he feels safe and cared for. Jesus' piercing gaze is not accepting uh, Zacchaeus' behavior, but it acknowledges him as a person worth engaging, worth talking to. You know, there's another translate or view of this story like when I was a kid I used to read the choose your own adventure books right this could have been a story where Zacchaeus says oh this is going too deep I don't want to talk about this or I'm too stuck in my ways I don't want to change thanks but no thanks Jesus's mission is still the same to show someone a human being respect to offer him the benefit of the doubt to tell him good news to be safe and holy And every person that you and I come into contact with and lay eyes on is someone made in the image of God. They may be rotten, but they're worth being safe and holy around. Zacchaeus' interchange is manifest by his actions. He not only becomes more generous, but he also offers restitution for the harm he's inflicted upon other people. In a previous story, the one that Kathleen read earlier, the rich young ruler tells Jesus that he follows all the commandments. He is holy by the outward popular definition of that word. And Jesus tells him, you must give up all your possessions for the poor and follow me if you want to truly be saved. The man went away with great sorrow because he too, he was too attached to his possessions. He, he couldn't let go of that thing that he was really putting his faith in. And Jesus, of course, said this incredibly powerful statement, it's easier for a camel, thousand pound animal, to go through the eye of a needle, and no, that's not some gate in the wall of Jerusalem, it's a re- an eye of a needle. Uh, and, and, and Jesus' disciples look at Jesus in disbelief and, and Who then can be saved? And Zacchaeus answers that question for us. Zacchaeus is a rich man who went through the eye of a needle. Because true salvation comes when we realize we are accepted into God's family, his community, and when we we repent, say, I want that. I want a different way of life. I've been living my way. I'm going your way. 
through Christ how we get to the eye of the needle. True salvation comes when we respond to the good news, like Zacchaeus, with joy, reorienting our life priorities. Repentance is more than believing the right things, although, you know me, I think the right things are important. That's why we preach the scriptures. But it also requires a life change, a reorienting of our priorities from greed and fear to generosity with our time and our money and our friendships. So what would it look like for you and me to further reorient our lives? One thing that we could do as a response to say, I want to be more of Christ's than I was. The story of Zacchaeus is good news to us because every one of us can have new life. Jesus is safe and Jesus is holy. He loves us and makes us want to be better people, more fully human. For those who are followers of Jesus, the story of Zacchaeus is also a template for us. How can you and I be safe and holy? And how can we as a church grow in being safe and holy? I think that's our great task before us. As we grow in Christ as individuals, we can become more and more the church that is safe and holy. We don't have to sacrifice on either side of that. And I think holding those two things in tension is miraculous. It's going to take Christ, and it's also the call that he has on, on his church. Um, it is fitting, then, that uh, Jeannie Wagner and I are going to be at these kneeling benches um, for our service of healing prayer. Uh, this is a time, once a month, when we set aside space um, to recognize that we believe God is a God who hears and answers prayer. And sometimes he heals us of physical things and heals us of emotional things and, and spiritual things going on. Maybe one of the things you want to consider while the music is playing and, and you have some, uh, some space to just be is what's one way you can reorient your life? What's one way we could grow in being safe and holy together? That might inspire you to come and, and pray about something. Uh, you might just want to ponder and pray about it where you sit. But I want to encourage you to, to take advantage of this time. Um, seek the Lord.